to tonight's program featuring the work of the Virginia Coalition of Human Rights. I'm Bud Hensgen, a member of the Northern Virginia chapter of the Unitarian Universalists for Justice in the Middle East. That's NOVA, U-U-J-M-E. We're a group based at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Arlington, Virginia. During the past two months, NOVA UUJME has hosted a Zoom program with the, two programs with the lobbyists from J Street and from Churches for a Middle East Peace, CMEP, seeking justice for social justice for Palestinians, including a two-state solution. Tonight, we set our sights on Virginia, and in particular, the Virginia legislature and the outstanding lobbying work of the Virginia Coalition of Human Rights, a group of 17 organizations in Virginia, including Jewish, Muslim, Christian, and non-denominational members working together for social justice for Palestinians. Nova UUJME is a member of VCHR. Before I begin, I wish to announce that next month on July 12th, we will be co-sponsoring a virtual meeting together with the New Story Leadership and St. John's Norwood Episcopal Church in Chevy Chase, Maryland, featuring a virtual discussion with the Israeli and Palestinian 2020 fellows and alumni of the New Story Leadership. More on that at the end of our meeting tonight. Right now, I would like to introduce Paul Nursi, one of the directors of VCHR, who will introduce our panelists and run our meeting tonight. So I'll turn it over to you now, Paul. Please take it from here. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Bud. Um, I'm uh, <clears throat> very happy to be here. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for attending. And we are pleased to have the opportunity to tell you a little bit about the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, who we are, and what we're doing. Um, the, um, our presentation today, uh, next slide, um, is uh, gonna start out with this introduction from me um, with a little overview, and then Gene uh, will speak about our efforts with uh, textbooks and education. Jim will talk about uh, our concerns regarding the Virginia-Israel Advisory Board, and Grant will talk about um, our concerns regarding a company called Energix. And then uh, lastly, at the end, we'll have uh, kind of open floor time when we can have questions and open discussion. Um, so the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights is a broad um, coalition of about of 17 member organizations and over 10,000 Virginians who believe that the Israeli-Palestinian issue is a human rights issue. Uh, it's a human rights matter that requires an open and free debate. We object to efforts to forestall this debate by placing limits on free speech and academic freedom. BCHR is pro-peace, pro-equal rights, and committed to work for a nonviolent solution that ensures full equality and self-determination for all. We are also opposed to hate speech and any type of discrimination based on race, religion, ethnicity, or national origin, wherever it may occur domestically or abroad. So freedom of speech is one of the core principles of the U.S. Constitution, and George Washington once famously said, quote, if freedom of speech may be taken away, then dumb and silent, we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. The primary accomplishment also of the First Continental Congress in 1774 was to boycott British goods. So with that as a background, fast forward a couple of hundred years and VCHR actually initially came together to protect freedom of speech and the right to boycott in Virginia. Uh, we, we came together initially in January of 2016 on an ad hoc basis to oppose a bill that had been introduced all of a sudden out of nowhere in the Virginia General Assembly 
to actually punish people and organizations who support boycotts, divestment, and sanctions as a peaceful protest to support human rights, Palestinian human rights in particular. To those of us involved in the human rights movement, it is obvious that the foreign government that was and is pushing these types of restrictions on Americans' free speech was and is ramping up their apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and other human rights violations and does not want to be criticized so as not to jeopardize the billions of dollars they take each year from U.S. taxpayers. That's why they don't want us to have free speech, so they can violate human rights with impunity. VCHR coalesced as a coalition in response to that bill, and we actively opposed it, and we defeated it in 2016, and we've been doing similar advocacy for human rights uh, since then. So uh, next, uh, here's, the, the, since then, the coalition has grown. We are, as I mentioned, currently 17 member organizations and a lot of great individual members. And as you can see, uh, and as Bud mentioned, the member organizations are a wide variety of both faith-based and secular peace and justice organizations. Uh, and we are always interested in having more people and organizations join us. So if you think you might be interested, please join us. Uh, you, can, you can sign up on our website or let us know it during the Q&A and um, we'd love to get more people involved. Um, next, uh, just going real briefly over some of our activities, uh, what we've done. I mentioned in 2016, we opposed House Bill 1282 and that was defeated. The, there was a similar bill in, called HB 2261 in 2017 which would have branded criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism. And that was clearly also a violation of free speech and we opposed it and that was also defeated. Um, uh, we've also worked a little bit on the federal level. We've been uh, actively supporting uh, in Congress in, um, HR 2407, which is an excellent bill that if passed will, prohi will prohibit US tax dollars from funding Israel's military detention and abuse of Palestinian children. And we're also currently supporting HRES 496 in Congress to affirm the right of Americans to participate in boycotts in pursuit of civil and human rights. And we're also currently working to address serious concerns regarding education and textbooks, which Gene will talk about, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, which Jim will talk about, and Energix, which Grant will discuss. So with no further ado, I'll pass it on to Gene to talk about um, education. Good evening, everyone. My name is Gene Trabalsi, and I'm co-chair of the Education Committee of the VCHR. As Paul said, uh, the VCHR believes that Israel-Palestine conflict is a human rights issue that requires academic debate and then any attempt to stop this debate, we would oppose. But when we think about it, in order even to have that debate, you have to have some sort of factual and unbiased account of what has actually happened in Palestine since 48. We hear that often students entering university have no idea or a wrong idea of what's going on in Israel-Palestine. Well, what actually is going on in Virginia high schools that make these kids so confused? In order to answer that question, we decided to take a look at high school books in Virginia. And what prompted us to do that was mainly because of this website that you're looking at right now. This is truly the impetus of our campaign. In the spring of 2018, VCHR was alerted to this webcast. This capture shows Eliza Kramer Elias, who is director of the Institute for Curriculum Services. That's a nonprofit, a California-based organization founded in 2005 by the Jewish Community Relations Council of San Francisco. ICS describes its mission as an effort to improve the quality of K-12 education on Jews, Judaism, and Israel in the US 
by developing standards-aligned curricula and training teachers around the country. Next slide. And they do. In addition, ICS provides online seminars, produces maps and videos, does on-site workshops, and has an online library and teacher toolkit, which includes a new booklet on teaching the Arab-Israeli conflict. ICS has spent over $1.3 million in 2017. Next slide. Well, what is their impact? As you can see from the slide, they've conducted trainings in more than 90 cities, 5,000 participants, and in the podcast, director Elias describes working with textbook publishers and claims that ICS has made over 11,000 edits to textbooks in all 50 states. She says that many of the major publishers come to them directly for manuscript writing and development, adding that about 85% of their edits are accepted. Slide four. Now, who requested that ICS review Virginia textbooks? This is the cover letter to the Virginia Department of Education that accompanied the ICS edits to Virginia textbooks. Through VFOIA's Virginia Freedom of Information Act, we obtained documents of ICS proposed edits for 12 history textbooks, grades four to 12, these books were slated for textbook adoption by Virginia. We found that three Israel affinity organizations in Virginia funded this report. They are the Jewish Community Relation Councils of Tidewater, Richmond, and Washington. Next slide. Well, what were the themes of these edits? In order to organize the hundreds of edits, we organized them into themes such as the ones on the slide. Let's look at the sanitizing language that were in the edits. ICS took exception whenever the textbooks mentioned settlers. They crossed out the word settlers and they said it should read communities. They crossed out wall and said wall should read security fence. They said that uh, whenever there was a flare up in the Middle East, it was always the Arab fault. They discourage students from having any sort of open internet research and they should use their uh, internet research platforms. They changed the labels on the maps like in the Golan Heights and uh, East Jerusalem. And they deleted all reference to the state of Palestine. Anytime the word Palestine was there, they changed it to write Palestinians. They would not allow the word Palestine to be in any other textbooks. Next slide. Here's an example of one edit. It's just what I talked about. Uh, you'll see here that uh, if you look at change, uh, it says uh, it originally had occupied territories and you see where they cross that out and they put control of the West Bank and Gaza and look at their comments. The term occupied territories is a politicized term which is inappropriate for a public school text. Next slide. Now, what we did was we, uh, in order to try to manage all of this, we had sort of a graphic organizer and you'll see this right here. You'll see the themes on the left, the examples of the edits in the middle and the problems with the edits and the, the right-hand column is our response. All of this is available on our website at uh, wvchr.org. Uh, Next slide. Now, these are some of the things that you can do. You can work with your state boards of education to ensure that these changes don't happen. Uh, you can work to strengthen facts where they are. Uh, you can leverage these efforts to educate parents and educators with supplementary materials. And most importantly, take a look at your state and find out where and when the textbook review cycle begins and ends. Next slide. Uh, we believe, uh, I think that's the end of my slides, but we believe that we have successfully countervailed against the ICS edits and we've countervailed against the current status of the uh, allowing Israelis and the Israeli uh, affinity groups to narrate history in Virginia textbooks. We feel that we have uh, opened a space 
to allow Palestinians to narrate their history. Thank you. Okay, I think I'm up. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Jim Metz, and I'm here to present VCHR's case against the Virginia Israel Advisory Board in the name of good governance. Next slide. What you just witnessed is the seal of the Commonwealth of Virginia morphing into a version of the seal that was used by the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, or VIAB. While VIAB was ordered to cease displaying this version of the seal, the morphing of Virginia's interests into Israel's interests continues. VIAB was established in 1996 by a bill introduced by House Delegate Eric Cantor. Yes, that Eric Cantor. VIAB's mission was to advise the governor, quote, on ways to improve economic and cultural links between the Commonwealth and the State of Israel. Over time, that mission has morphed from advisory to acting as an agent for foreign direct investment in the Commonwealth by Israeli companies. No other country has its own state agency soliciting foreign direct investment. Next slide. Given VIAB's unique status, it's not surprising that VIAB advances the interests of a foreign country. As Paul mentioned, a bill introduced in 2016 that would have given VIAB the authority to maintain a blacklist of companies that supports BDS. Well, there has not been another attempt since then to empower VIAB in this way. The possibility remains. Until recently, joint resolutions were regularly passed resolving, as an example, that the State of Israel hereby be commended for its cordial and mutually beneficial relationship with the United States and with the Commonwealth of Virginia." Unquote. These resolutions committed the Commonwealth to take sides in a foreign dispute. In 2018, the Virginia Senate announced that it would no longer entertain these resolutions. VIAB advertises itself to Israeli defense companies as being in a position to help them circumvent the offshore procurement phase-out provision of the Memorandum of Understanding on U.S. military aid to Israel. OSP is meant to shift spending of U.S. military aid from Israeli companies to U.S. companies. By setting up U.S. subsidiaries, VIAB promises to provide a way for Israeli defense companies to continue to receive these military aid dollars. Furthermore, establishing U.S. subsidiaries for Israeli companies has been touted as a way to protect them in the event that a boycott against Israel were organized. Next slide, please. VIAB uses Virginia taxes and development funds to promote the economic interests of Israeli businesses. Virginia taxpayers fund VIAB's operational expenses at $219,000 a year and provides them with office space in the General Assembly office building. Israeli companies use grants and loans targeting stressed economic areas of Virginia to leverage their capital investments. For example, the funding provided to an Israeli aquaculture company for a project in Tazewell County approved in 2013 includes $10 million loan from the Virginia Coalfield Economic Development Authority, $1.5 million in Tobacco Region Opportunity Fund grants, $1 million again in 2013 from the Tobacco Region Opportunity Fund, and a half million dollars more in 2015. 
And besides that, $1 million in county tax abatements. Next slide, please. Viab's deals favor the interests of Israeli businesses over Virginia municipalities and businesses. So these companies oftentimes have the municipality over a barrel. When Aquamoth, the Aquafarm company mentioned before, failed to find private backing for their Aquafarm venture, a condition of the $10 million loan, Rather than call in the loan, Aquamoth has been given one-year extensions, which they have received every year since 2014. In addition to negotiating extensions, the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy reports that the Aquamoth subsidiary renegotiated the terms of the $10 million Coalfield Development Authority loan. Under the new terms, Virginia will, en will end up losing $4.78 million in lost interest and principal repayment. If that were not enough, Aquamoth's original business plan was to go after the tilapia market of an employee-owned aquafarm in Martinsville, Virginia. Next slide, please. Given the lack of oversight, it is not surprising that self-dealing and corruption occur among Viab's board members. Viab board member Aviva Fry lobbies for the Israeli subsidiary Caden Energex while serving as the subsidiary's director of regulation and public relations. Chuck Lesson used his position as Viab vice chair to avoid repaying the balance of a grant to his company, Appalachian Biofuels, when it failed to meet the jobs and revenue metrics. Next slide, please. Using Viab's legislation as a template, the Virginia Asian and Latino advisory boards were set up to, quote, advise the governor on ways to improve economic and cultural ties between the Commonwealth and the nations of their respective regions. As one can see, the VAAB and the VLAB differ from VIAB in that they represent regions, not individual countries. Furthermore, they focus on the domestic political and economic interests of their respective ethnic communities, not the economic and political interests of the countries of origin. Furthermore, they function in an advisory capacity, reporting to the governor through the Secretary of the Commonwealth, as opposed to VIAB, which exercises executive authority to arrange economic development projects while reporting to the legislative department rather than the governor. Next slide, please. Well, despite these uh, rather daunting uh, impediments, there are signs of a pushback. In 2018, a statewide poll showed that 38.1% of Virginians favored halting all taxpayer funding for Israeli businesses. In 2018, the Virginia Senate first announced that it would no longer entertain resolutions commending a foreign state. And secondly, they opposed originally the transfer of VIAB from the executive branch to the legislative branch. And finally, just in this past General Assembly, there was a bill introduced to create the Virginia Korea Advisory Board with a budget and executive authority like VIABS. This bill was left in committee with significant op opposition from the VAAB. In an article published in Blue Virginia, Laura Foe 
chair of Asian Americans Impacting Virginia wrote, quote, creating an independent advisory board for only one specific country, in this case, South Korea, is problematic. Next slide. Well, how does the VCHR propose to address our problems with the Virginia Israel Advisory Board? We have a two-pronged strategy. First, we are challenging VIAB's legitimacy by introducing legislation in the 2021 General Assembly to defund VIAB as it is currently organized. Secondly, we are exposing VIAB's overreach and corruption by investigating VIAB's projects, conducting petition drives, registering complaints before oversight organizations and other activities. At this point, I would like to turn the presentation over to Grant, who will tell you about one of these petition drives. Thank you. The Energix uh, company that we're gonna talk about right now, um, I first ran into when doing research for a book published in 2019, on the subject Jim was talking about, uh, called The Israel Lobby Interstate Government. Uh, because as was mentioned, this was something very unique to have uh, this sort of lobbying, which is typically conducted by chambers of commerce, suddenly uh, start having giant projects and operating from within the state government. And although the book is done, uh, the information upon which it is based is still flowing uh, from what are now around 80 Virginia Freedom of Information Act filings with various government agencies. Uh, Gene mentioned what a powerful tool that can be for getting non-public information about what's really going on. And what Jim mentioned, the idea that there was actually a VIAB member who was contacting the governor's office, contacting regulators, and doing so under the pretext of being a VIAB board member, but also lobbying on behalf of Energix, which she would later tell officials, I run in the United States. So that was very interesting, but it turns out that the real story went beyond the conflict of interest. The real story is Energix's record of violating human rights overseas. Uh, Energix was cited by the American Friends Service Committee, which noted that Another Israeli company that also does business in occupied territories, Aloni Hats, owned a controlling stake in Energix, and that Energix, the renewable energy company, had built a five megawatt capacity solar field in Materem in the Israeli occupied Jordan Valley, uh, Jordan Valley on almost 99 thousand square meters of Palestinian land. Uh, according to another report by whoprofits.org, which published a report called Greenwashing the Occupation in 2017, they noted that Palestinian villages surrounding this Mount Hebron area had been, quote, suffering from forcible displacement, demolitions, lack of basic services, and overall economic strangulation, unquote. And they were not allowed to either benefit by purchasing any of this electricity generated on their land, nor were they allowed to even own or operate residential solar for their own personal use. But the real uh, high profile designation came on February 12 of this year when the United 
Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights designated Energix Renewable Energies as a Category G company for operating in Israeli-occupied territories. This category covers, quote, the use of natural resources, in particular water and land, for business purposes. As such, it is considered to include business enterprises that are physically located on land in the occupied Palestinian territory, in addition to those that benefit commercially from the use of natural resources located in occupied Palestinian territory, irrespective of such business enterprises' physical presence, unquote. In other words, taking the land, generating power from the sun, uh, landed them as a UN-designated uh, company. Uh, Who Profits also documented that Energix built back in 2015 a 155 megawatt wind turbine facility in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. And there's an organization, Al-Nassad, which, which has published a report that's also very interesting called Windfall, the Exploitation of Wind Energy in the Occupied Golan. And it's all about Energix's operation in prime locations in collusion with the Israeli government in an effort that the Syrians in the Golan Heights field is to, quote, cement the land to the Israeli government, unquote, and embed natural resource-based industries uh, in that area. And so now Energix has arrived in the United States, and it all started with help from the Virginia-Israel Advisory Board. Next slide, please. So here we have a map. Uh, in 2018, in some uh, board meeting minutes, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board quietly announced that a multi-billion dollar Israeli real estate and renewable energy concern with significant properties in DC and Northern Virginia, is developing several solar energy sites in Virginia to produce electricity, energies. Uh, although Viab cited solar as the focus of the venture, uh, the Virginia's Real Advisory Board, which codenames everything uh, for reasons that we could talk about if there's time, but they codenamed it Project Turbine, possibly as a point of pride in Energix's Golan Heights wind turbine process, uh, projects, uh, solar voltaic farms. As far as I know, they don't use turbines. So this is Project Turbine. And this is a map uh, that through freedom of information requests, we've obtained uh, a map of 11 Energix projects across the Commonwealth with an estimated capex, capital expenditure of $250 million to install a base of 400, or excuse me, 341 megawatts. And if you think that uh, each megawatt can power around 650 homes. The total capacity that they aspire to could power you know, nearly a quarter million homes at peak. So it's a lot of capacity, but nevertheless, it's not a vital part of Virginia's solar future by any means. That's because there's plenty of competition to build solar arrays in Virginia, and the state is well on its way to having uh, and reaching its goal of 3,000 megawatts of solar by 2022, whether or not Energix is part of the picture. So uh, what we have here is a map, a little breakdown, some color coding. The Energix sites you see in green that say construction are now under construction. Uh, I visited the site in Hickory, which is just outside uh, the city of Chesapeake, it's down there in the lower corner. Uh, Rives Road in Prince George County, Pamplum and Adamatic, uh, Appomattox County. All of these are under construction. Some of the other greens have been given permits that will allow them uh, to start uh, talking about construction and doing intense planning or they're in pre-permitting or permitting stages, the ones in yellow. 
so this is a result of close tracking. If we go to the next slide, through research conducted by a VCHR volunteer, we discovered that the process for setting up a utility scale solar array in Virginia is highly decentralized. The operator basically finds a suitable parcel of land with good potential interconnection with a utility grid. They sign a long-term agreement with the owners, typically a 35-year lease. Uh, they then notify the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality uh, that they want to build this solar array under some legislation called permit by rule. And this is typically the point where we've become aware that Energix is trying to do another project uh, because that's public information. The operator then obtains a conditional use permit, meaning they are granted an exception to rural zoning laws to build a solar utility in what's usually land slated for agricultural use. Uh, finally, they get a construction permit and build the array and finally connect with the utility or regional distribution system wholesaler. Uh, and allegedly after three decades of operations, they will, or at least they promise to remediate the site. Uh, solar panels can be very toxic and they require some special handling. Uh, county boards of supervisors and sometimes city councils then we've discovered are the key officials who decide whether or not to issue conditional use construction and occupancy permits. And if they don't like a project, if it, it, it doesn't proceed. So we've already seen some projects that have been rejected because they didn't conform with the pre-existing solar strategy. Uh, others have been insufficient in terms of their remediation plans. And through the Freedom of Information Act uh, in Virginia, we've obtained many Energix permit applications to cities and counties across the Commonwealth, and they all have one thing in common. Energix never talks about its UN designation for overseas operations or any of these reports that have been out for years now. It doesn't discuss them in mandatory public meetings or licensing correspondence. Somehow, the UN designation never comes up. And yet, Energix's track record is highly relevant. Uh, but before now, officials have had little chance of becoming aware of how Energix operations overseas could impact these long-term projects or factor that into the permitting process before they break ground. But that has changed. Next slide. So lately, these permit givers have been hearing a great deal about how Energix corporate culture could impact operations and how it should impact the permitting process. VCHR's position paper, which is on the website, um, lays it out in three key factors. The first is simply the moral hazard. The fact that Energix, which is the owner of the subsidiary LLCs that are operating in all of these counties have actively concealed their present complicity in human rights violations and potential violations of uh, US code, specifically the Neutrality Act, raises the question of whether they will honor US laws and legal obligations are undertaking in these counties. Uh, the second is financial wherewithal. Has Energix, through its operation, through its complicity and violations, created the potential for liabilities or potential victim litigation, which could impair any of the financial obligations that Energix overtakes to operate in a county? And that can include all sorts of payments uh, to uh, the county for rural developments, uh, certainly for remediation, taxes, etc. And third, reputational risk. Do these counties and cities really want to enter into a long-term relationship with a subsidiary of an operator which has concealed their complicity in human rights violations? Will their public image be marred if they do that? Now, none of these conditions have been raised. Uh, none of them, of course, have been raised by the Energix subsidiary, 
the federal law alluded to above is the Neutrality Act, which could come into play if Energix begins transmitting revenues through its corporate entities to its parents, in effect financing enterprises against territories and peoples with whom the United States is at peace. The Neutrality Act is still on the books in this country. In 2015, there was a Neutrality Act prosecution against a group engaged in activities in Gambia, and the Department of Justice prosecuted it. Now, whether or not the current administration would ever do that in this case is kind of irrelevant since the extremely large utilities that are downstream from this and the small counties that may not have much sophistication in the legal department have to consider these concerns raised by VCHR. So educating permit grantors where Energix has failed is a part of this campaign. And so finally, uh, last slide please, um, there is a petition called ejectenergix.org and it's very clear that this is not an anti-solar campaign. Solar energy, as the petition states, is a good thing. The campaign is a campaign to educate the public and gain signatures from those who are concerned about the human rights implications of expanding Energix operations in Virginia. And so the public petition launched by VCHR is built on simple messages. Energix builds on Israeli-occupied territory. It's a designated UNHCR company. It's expanding in Virginia. So don't allow it to build solar on human rights abuses. And the more signatures that are collected by ejectenergix.org, uh, the more there can be a legitimate public uh, wave of concern projected onto these cities and counties and also just build general awareness. And so a second part of the strategy will be getting more locals living within a two mile radius of each proposed facility to sign on to this campaign and get uh, more public profile during public comment periods. Uh, this work obviously requires continuous monitoring of Energix moves and their communications, and it's been resource intensive, but so far it's been a very bona fide grassroots response to a bad actor brought into Virginia by the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. I see we have a, a few questions, and I think which uh, various members might want to address, and Gene, you have one addressed to you, but you might want to bring that up and address it to us here too as well. Um, and then um, we'll go from there. I'll go ahead and read the question out uh, from Zaina to, for Jean. If we, if we see questionable curriculum materials or a film that portrays Palestinians in a discriminatory or unjust way, et cetera, to whom should we reach out? Should we write to the teacher and or principal of a school, the social studies coordinator of a county, the school board, what would you recommend? And should we write to and challenge the creator of the educational material too? Uh, Zaina, do you have something specific uh, in mind? Is it a textbook publisher? Do you have a name? May I speak? Yes, <laughs> please do. Actually, um, a friend of mine's daughter has a, uh, was asked to watch a film about Jerusalem, and it's very, I mean, it really marginalizes the Palestinian presence and never even actually uses the word, the name Palestinian in it. And it has a lot of stereotypes, and, um, and so we're trying to figure out what do we, you know, how, what's the best course? Where, who, to whom do we... Uh, write to or reach out and talk to. Uh, do you know if this film is attached to some textbook? Textbook, you know, part yeah. of a textbook. It's a standalone. It's a standalone film. Mm -hmm. um, and um, is it Fairfax County? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that your suggestions are very good ones. Um, I would probably first go to the social studies coordinator. Uh, because she's the one that uh, she or he 
uh, is now Fairfax a very big, big county, of course. Um, they probably have a larger office, but yes, I would go to the social studies coordinator. You know, this something like this was already done in Loudoun with NAWA. You know about NAWA, right? The National Arab American Women's Association. Right. I'm actually working with NAWA to address this. So, um, so we're thinking, you know, of going, of actually writing to the filmmaker. Yes. Actually picking apart the film and then sending a copy to the social studies coordinator. Um, but we don't, you know, I'm not sure this is the right, right strategy. Uh, I mean, anything that you can do to countervail um, this is the right strategy, in my opinion. Um, we wrote many, many letters to publishers of textbooks, seven of them. And uh, we got back uh, pretty much a pro forma response, except for one, Pearson was quite open uh, to our comments. So you may be pleasantly surprised um, with your comments. I like the idea of you picking apart where there is an error. Uh, that's really smart. Um, okay. if, if, you, if you want to send it to us, I mean, we'll be happy to look at it, the Education Committee, uh, in the sense that, you know, we've got 10,000 members. This is a large coalition behind you. Uh, we can help you as well. Um, That's good. That, yeah, Kathy, do you have any ideas? Kathy's my co-chair, Kathy Drinkard. I think there's a lot to be said for writing to the Social Studies Director um, with Fairfax County. Mm -hmm. um, I would go there and I would actually um, say something to the teacher that assigned it as well. Yes. I think, you know, I think, I think there's a whole, a whole set of different levels of places yeah, where you can go and going to all those places would be useful. But I think the, the, sec, the social studies coordinator is probably a good place to go. And you know, what we are doing with NAWA and other groups is we're presenting supplementary material to the social studies coordinators in Arlington. In other words, there's gross errors in the textbooks in Arlington. And so we're presenting to them, we have a Palestinian curriculum, for instance. So now lately, we've been having all kinds of curriculum that have come up that are accurate and not biased. So that's the other thing you can you can present other curriculums to the teacher that are already in place. Thanks for that question. Great, great point. Um, backing up, I, I sorry I missed. Bud had a question, um, but I think this is either to Jim or it's a, this is regarding Viab, right? In in your work investigating how deeply. Israel supporting organizations are involved in Virginia and Virginia politics. Have you learned of Israel supporting groups operating in other states as well? I think maybe Jim and or Grant could talk to that. Well, I can, I can certainly begin. Uh, to our knowledge and uh, based on statements made by uh, Viab, uh, Viab is a unique situation. It is part of, it is a state agency within the government of Virginia. No other state has that kind of arrangement. Now there are uh, Israeli chambers of commerce, uh, and in fact the current uh, executive director of IAB came from the Texas-Israel Chamber of Commerce. But, but the significant difference there is that they operate outside state government. And, you know, they, they are petitioning the government like any other interest group. But, but in the case of Virginia, uh, that, that interest group is part of the uh, state government. Um, another question also from Bud, how would you describe the level of support you have found among Virginia legislators? How much opposition, how much just plain ignorance or lack of interest? We just recently uh, uh, lobbied in the 2020 uh, General Assembly uh, against a bill I think I mentioned at the Virginia Korea Advisory Board. 
And we found a surprising number of delegates who were uh, sympathetic to the case being made that a, a, a state agency uh, uh, focused on a single foreign country is, is um, uh, you know, not, not, they, they're not comfortable with it. Um, we've also been told that, um, especially among the legislative aides, uh, they are reading Grant's book and are becoming quite amazed at, at, the, at the fact that VIAB exists, that it has the reach that it has. Um, so I think there is a growing, uh, a growing support uh, for addressing this issue. And uh, we will, uh, we have a handful of loyal supporters that we're going to be meeting with over the summer to develop our uh, legislative uh, proposals uh, to introduce into the 2021 General Assembly. So next question was um, from Neil, how has VCHR reached out to the environmentalist community in Virginia? I can speak a little to that. Uh, um, maybe Jim and Nancy can chime in. We have had informal discussions with some, mem some members or supporters of the Virginia Green New Deal. And um, we, we're exploring the possibility of trying to add um, some kind of human rights screen in Virginia New Deal Virginia Green New Deal legislation. So the idea is that we're, we, we want to spend money on the environment, we want solar, we want wind power, but we don't want to in, invest state money into orga, uh, organizations or companies that are violators of human rights. We don't want to, you know, so, and in general, that should be an innocuous proposition uh we're we're gonna that's one of the one of the strategies we're considering for the next legislative session it seems like a lot of people may be looking at the same plots of land it's a very vibrant uh competitive situation the 2019 report on solar in virginia lots of different companies but uh, I, I think it's difficult to answer the displacement question uh the, some of these counties are just absolutely being flooded with proposals though um, and it's, it is a very competitive environment. Next question was, how much VA state funding supports VIAB and do they have any other income? How large is their budget? Well, I think I, think I mentioned that they, they, uh, their, their annual budget uh, presently is $219,000. Uh, that's uh, mostly for personnel. Uh, the executive director, and I think there's some part-time uh, administrative people. Um, but I think I think the most significant, uh, 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 and they also get the office space for free, which uh, the other advisory boards don't, don't get. But I think the most significant uh, uh, influence that they have, or, or resource that they have is their connection to um, the, uh, the various commissions that, uh, that are responsible for these grants and loans for economic development. Uh, they, they have easy access to these folks. They know where the money is. Uh, they have a, a, a tremendous advantage over other, other companies, foreign and Virginian. Uh, because of that relationship that they have, they're right, they're there, sitting in the General Assembly office building. For example, Orin Safety Glass in Greensville County, more than $3 million. They got their building at a discounted rate. They basically just paid whatever the county would have uh, held it on its books for, the shell building they're operating out of. And then after, you know, having lots of utilities like Mecklenburg Electric Cooperative go out on a limb to give them electricity and adequately supply them, 
This Israeli bulletproof glass manufacturer then jeopardized the entire county investment by basically uh, delivering substandard products to its Department of Defense or its U.S. Army contracts for safety glass that was not adequate uh, to their specs, even after they agreed to, to make the glass under U.S. Army specs. So, you know, some of these deals, Jim mentioned a couple of them, it's not their budgets, their location in the Pocahontas building, it's this wider economic impact and tapping all of these resources to launch projects that if they had more public scrutiny and more relevant press and a little bit more citizen input, they would never even be launched. There is a, a sponsored trip to Israel and it, it brings along the governor and various secretaries and uh, donors and uh, they, all, they all meet in Israel with you know, the heads of uh, their defense uh, companies and uh, members of the military and uh, they strike deals. Yeah, one of the deals, in fact, that they struck on uh, McAuliffe's visit was they signed an MOU between Sabra Dipping Company and Virginia Tech that really put Virginia Tech into a position of not managing a technology portfolio but becoming kind of a sales and market research arm to Sabra Dipping Company. So it's another one of these things that has a very big impact, at least on how that school is allocating resources. They wouldn't even release the text of the MOU without a FOIA and quasi threat of a lawsuit if they didn't release it. So a lot of these deals, again, they don't stand up to close scrutiny and they try to keep them from getting much sunlight on them. There's a lot of information that's been developed by VCHR that I've put out there in various reports in the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, exposing some of these deals so that now when you put VIAB into Google News, you get a lot more information about what's going on. And it's not, I don't think it's working well in this whole quest for secrecy and working behind the scenes. So. Uh, one of the goals of the book was to decode every single name in their list of secret projects. Project Turbine, Salty Fish, you know, Project Jonah, which is the fish farm, and just say, enough! This is Aquamouth. This is Sabra Dipping Company. That's Orange Safety Glass. Can we just stop it already? Uh, Robin has a question. Uh, isn't the provision of free office space to VIAB but not to VAAB or VLAB, the Asian American or Latino American boards, isn't that a violation of anti-discrimination laws? Uh, well, I think I think definitely uh, it, it's an it's an example of, of favoritism being shown one special interest group over over the others. And in fact, it was the basis of VAAB's complaint about uh, the Virginia Korea Advisory Board, because they would have been given a budget. Uh, there was no mention of office space, but they would have the budget and the executive authority that VIAB has. And they feel that's divisive. It's, uh, it, it shows favoritism. It's unfair to the other, uh, the other interests. Really, VIAB in that sense sticks out like a sore thumb among the other similar boards. None of them get any, any of this kind of special treatment that VIAB has, and it, it, it jumps out at you if you look at it objectively. I want to just wrap up by reminding you to put July 12th on your calendar. Please join the New Story Leadership and St. John's Norwood Episcopal Church and Nova UUJME in hosting and co-sponsoring a virtual event on July 12th with the Israeli and Palestinian 2020 Fellows and alumni of New Story Leadership. The event will feature a discussion moderated by NPR's Jerusalem correspondent, Daniel Estrin. So we all know him on religion, identity, and social change. 
the discussion will be followed by smaller breakout sessions offering a deeper conversation about topics including breaking barriers through religion, environmental activism, journalism, media, diplomacy, and peace building, and nonviolent action and political activism. So it's going to be a live uh, or a virtual presentation uh, with, I think it's five Israelis and five Palestinians who have participated in this program and their ideas and their experiences well worth doing. So please uh, join us on July 12th. And with that, I will close it out and thank everybody for being with us tonight. And uh, I hope that you all profited by it as much as I did. Thank you very much.